0: So my Dharma talk tonight is actually something of a book report. (laughs) I, I recently read a book about young children who report memories of a past life. And it was so mind blowing that I wanted to share it with the Sangha. I have not particularly been a believer in reincarnation. In fact, Many years ago, I struggled with whether I could actually call myself a Buddhist because I didn't really believe in reincarnation. I was helped by, I've mentioned this before, reading a book by Stephen Batchelor called Buddhism Without Beliefs, which talked about Buddhism as something to do, to practice, rather than something that you have to believe in. So I decided I could call myself a Buddhist, uh, and then I would just leave the question of reincarnation open. So I have tried to stay open-minded about it, but I was trained as a social scientist and I like to see evidence to support certain beliefs. To my amazement, there is now quite a bit of evidence supporting the idea that some people at least come back to live another life after death. The book detailing this evidence is called Before. It's by a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Jim Tucker, and he describes research conducted through the University of Virginia that started in 1960 when his mentor, psychiatrist Dr. Ian Stevenson, published a report of 44 cases of children who reported memories of a past life. Stevenson and his assistants kept investigating and finding other cases around the world, and then this research was carried on by Jim Tucker, the current author. The cases now number over 2,500. So what's a case? Investigations into a case would consist of detailed interviews with the family, the child, and often family members and connections of the past life that were able to be identified based on the statements of the child. In a typical case, a very young child between the ages of two and four begins to describe memories of another life. When the child had given enough detail of names and locations of the previous life, the family would often go there to try to find if the child's statements fit the life of a person who has died in the recent past. If researchers were able to corroborate the connections between the child's memories and the previous personality, they consider the case to be solved. Otherwise it's termed unsolved. I will share a solved case that illustrates some of the level of detail with these memories that is hard to explain by conventional means. So I'll I'll read excerpts of a case here. Sujith Jayarotni, a boy from a suburb of the Sri Lankan capital, Colombo, began showing an intense fear of trucks when he was only eight months old. When he became old enough to talk, he said that he had lived in Gorakana, a village seven miles away, and that he had died after being hit by a truck. The boy made numerous statements about that life. His great uncle, a monk at a nearby temple, heard some of them, and mentioned Sujith to a younger monk at the temple. The story interested this younger monk, so he talked with Sujith, who was a little more than two and a half years old at the time, about his memories, and then he wrote up notes of the conversations before he attempted to verify any of the statements. His notes document that Sujith said he was from Gorakhana and lived in the section of Gorakawadi, that his father was named Jamis and had a bad right eye, that he had attended school and had a teacher named Francis there, and that he gave money to a woman named Kasuma who prepared food for him. Sujit had also told his mother and grandmother a number of other things about the previous life that no one wrote down until after the previous personality had been identified. He said his name was Sammy, and that he sometimes called himself Gorakana Sammy. Kosuma, the woman he had mentioned to the monk, was his younger sister's daughter. He said that his wife's name was Maggie. He had worked for the railroad and transported Arak, a liquor that was illegally traded. He said that on the day he died, he and Maggie had quarreled. She left the house and he then went out to the store. While he was crossing the road, a truck ran over him and he died. The young monk went to Gorakana to look for a family who had a deceased member whose life matched Sujith's statements. After some effort, he discovered that a 50-year-old man named Sammy Fernando, or Gorakana Sammy, as he was sometimes called, had died after being hit by a truck six months before Sujith was born. All of Sujith's statements proved to be correct. For Sammy Fernando. Once Sammy Fernando was identified as the previous personality, Sujit was able to recognize several people from Sammy's life. He also commented on changes that had been made in the Fernando property. He displayed other behaviors along with the phobia of trucks that were consistent with Sammy Fernando's life. Sujith would pretend to drink Arak and then would act drunk. He also attempted to get Arak from neighbors, including one who obliged him until his grandmother intervened. In addition, he tried to smoke cigarettes. No one in his family drank Arak or smoked cigarettes, but Sammy Fernando consumed plenty of both. Sujith also asked for spicy foods Sammy Fernando frequently enjoyed once his family would not normally have considered giving to a small child. In addition, he had a tendency as a toddler to be physically aggressive and to use obscenities, two habits that Sammy Fernando demonstrated when he was intoxicated. By the time Sujith was six years old, he had stopped talking about Sammy Fernando's life and displayed less of the unusual behavior that he had shown earlier. He still continued to ask for arak if he saw others drinking it. So this this subject illustrates some of the typical features of, of these cases. Sujit first communicated about the previous life when he was two and a half. The researchers found that the average age is 35 months, so just under three. His case is also typical in that he stopped talking about the previous life by the time he was six. Most children stop by six or seven and often deny any memory of the previous life when asked after that. The author noted that the children seem to become more fully involved in the current life and let memories of the previous life go at around that time. In regard to details of the children's statements, they would frequently talk about the manner of death of the previous personality. And very interestingly, Sujit's depiction of a violent death is very typical in these cases. Seventy percent died by unnatural means, by accidents, drowning, murder, fire, suicide, etc. This figure is much higher than the actual proportion of unnatural deaths in any of the areas studied. I'll I'll get back to the implications of this uh, finding later. The researchers also noted the manner in which children would speak of a prior life. Some would be rather detached, but many would show intense emotion as they talked about people and events in memory, and some would cry daily to go back to their old family. Some children would say, you are not my parents. My parents live somewhere else and clamor to be taken to their real family, confusing past life and present life. Other children were more able to refer to their previous life as being in the past. Many of the children show a phobia that relates to the manner of death of the prior personality. In fact, More than 35% show such phobias, and they seem particularly common in drowning cases. Tucker speculates that the more prolonged process of dying in such cases is experienced as more traumatic than a death that is very quick. These phobias can appear when the children are very young. A girl in India showed an intense fear of being immersed in water from the time she was an infant. Three people had to hold her down for her baths. Beginning at the age of six months, she also showed a great fear of buses. When she became old enough to talk, she reported memories of the life of a girl in the nearby village of Galtudawa. And in fact, her first words were Galtudawa mother. The girl in Dawa was 11 years old when she died, one and a half years before the current girl, Shamlini, was born. She had been walking along a narrow road when a bus came by. When she tried to step out of its way, she fell into a flooded field next to the road and drowned. Shamlini began getting over her fear of being bathed when she was three years old and the fear didn't completely resolve by the time she was four. Her fear of buses lasted longer until she was at least five and a half. And that was about the time she stopped talking spontaneously about the previous life. Tucker reported that in general, as the children grew older, the phobias tended to diminish along with the statements about the previous life. Sujith's case demonstrates another unusual behavior uh, that was sometimes found. Interest in addictive substances that the previous personality used. Sujith displayed a desire to indulge in alcohol and cigarettes and a number of the other subjects did as well. Some of the children show unusual food habits and preferences, which the author noted could be problematic for some of the Indian children who report memories of lives in higher castes than their own current caste. One Indian boy reported memories of the life of a Brahmin, a higher caste than that of his family. He refused to eat his family's food and a kind Brahmin neighbor agreed to prepare food for him in the Brahmin manner. This went on for more than a year and a half until the boy was finally willing to eat his family's food. In some cases, The subject may be the only person in the family to enjoy a food for which the previous personality had a particular fondness. Stevenson collected two dozen cases of Burmese children who reported being Japanese soldiers killed in Burma in World War II. The children's behavior has often been quite distinctive, including food preferences. A number of these children complain about the spicy Burmese food and prefer sweet foods or raw or partially cooked fish. The case of Ma Tin Ang Mio born in 1953 is a good example. During her pregnancy, her mother dreamed three times that a Japanese army cook whom she had known during the Japanese army's occupation of Burma followed her and said that he wanted to come and stay with her family. When the girl was four years old, she was walking with her father one day and became very upset as an airplane flew overhead. After that, she cried every time a plane flew over, a behavior she showed for a number of years. Around that time, she began saying that she longed for Japan and she gradually told the story of being a Japanese soldier who was killed by machine gun fire from a low-flying plane when he was stationed in her family's visit. These cases of Burmese children who claim to remember lives as Japanese soldiers are similar to the unsolved case of Carl Eden, a British boy who seemed to remember the life of a German pilot in World War II. Born in 1972, he began saying, I crashed a plane through a window when he was two years old. He gradually added details about having been on a bombing mission over England when he crashed. When he became able to draw, he drew swastikas and eagles, and later, the panel of a cockpit. He also demonstrated the Nazi salute and the goose-step march of German soldiers. He said that he wanted to live in Germany. Unlike the other members of his soup he liked to eat sausages and thick soups tucker reported that the children's play is often quite notable with at least a quarter of the subjects were showing themes in their play that seemed connected to the previous life this often involves play mimicking the occupation of the previous personality but other forms occur as well One child, a girl, would cradle a piece of wood or a pillow in her arms and call it Minu, the name of the previous personality's daughter. Some children would act out the way the previous personality died. A boy in Myanmar who reported memories of a man who drowned on a ferry boat from time to time would act out a scene in which he pretended to escape from a sinking boat boy in Lebanon reenacted the suicide of a previous personality by repeatedly putting a stick under his chin while pretending it was a rifle. Tucker notes that such play is actually quite similar to play of children who have survived a major traumatic incident in this life. Amazingly, numerous cases appear to possess birthmarks or birth defects that appeared to match with the wounds on the body of the previous personality. Dr. Stevenson wrote about 225 such cases, leading the author to suggest the trauma for the previous personality might have the potential to affect the physical body of the developing child as well as the psyche. So you can see many of these cases originated in Asian countries where the idea of reincarnation is commonly accepted, and families were eager to locate the families of the past personality their children were talking about. However, there are some American cases, more all the time, and I will give you some details about one that also illustrates another theme that sometimes appears with these children, the possession of special talents. So Tucker reported that this case is most notable for the child's behavior and abilities. He first heard from the child's father when the boy was three. The father reported that his son Hunter had received a set of plastic golf clubs when he turned two. The boy had loved the clubs and played with them incessantly. A few months later, Hunter's father was running through the television channels when he passed the golf channel. Neither of Hunter's parents played golf, and his father hadn't even known that the family got the Golf Channel, but once Hunter saw it, he told his parents to go back to it. From then on, he had no interest in children's shows and wanted to watch nothing but the Golf Channel. His parents had to limit him to 30 minutes in the morning and again at night. One day, there was an infomercial about Bobby Jones a famous golfer in the 1920s, whose name is now used by a company that makes golf equipment. When Hunter saw the program, he told his parents that he had been Bobby Jones when he was big. He said this repeatedly. Someone would ask him what his name was, he would say Bobby Jones. He wanted to be called Bobby and would correct people if they called him Hunter. He would also correct them if they called him Tiger, or any other name. He knew of Tiger Woods and other golfers from the Golf Channel, and he liked them, but he was much more passionate about Bobby Jones. His parents initially laughed about all this. They were both raised Christian. But his father had read some things about Buddhism and was intrigued by the idea of rebirth and decided to test Hunter. He showed Hunter pictures of six golfers from the 1920s and asked him, which was Bobby Jones? Hunter pointed at the picture of Bobby Jones and said, this is me. He then pointed to the picture of another golfer, Harry Varden. Hunter said, this, Harry Garden, my friend. Hunter's father printed pictures off the internet of several houses, including Bobby Jones' childhood home. When he showed them to Hunter, Hunter said, house, 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 as he pointed to each picture until he got to Bobby Jones's home. He suddenly appeared wistful as he said, home. Hunter would take his little golf clubs wherever he went. When he practiced at the beach, he called it the sand trap. Golfers would see him practicing and comment on what a great swing he had. His parents gave him a set of real golf clubs for Christmas, and he then began taking lessons at a golf club. The usual starting age for lessons was five, but when the staff saw Hunter's swing, they accepted him while he was still two. His instructor called him a golf prodigy. Several older golfers commented that Hunter's swing reminded them of Bobby Jones. I'll skip over some of this uh, material. Um, uh, By the time that the book went to print, uh, Tucker said that Hunter was now seven. Um, He wasn't talking so much about Bobby Jones anymore, but he continued to love to play golf. And at last count, he had won 41 out of 50 junior golf tournaments, including 21 in a row. Tucker notes that in 9% of their cases, the children are said to have unusual skills related to the previous life. This often involves the family's subjective opinion that their child was able to perform an activity better than children would normally be expected to. But in Hunter's case, winning 21 golf tournaments in a row is more than a subjective opinion. He clearly was displaying a highly unusual ability. So the author goes through a variety of normal explanations that have been advanced to explain these children's reports. Faulty memory on the part of informants, active fraud, fantasy on the part of the child, coincidence, people learning details of the supposed past life in various ways. But Tucker states, that no normal explanations can account for all of their cases. Stevenson has written over time that eventually he became persuaded that reincarnation was the best explanation for the stronger cases he investigated. Tucker says that to be slightly more conservative, he believes that the best explanation for the strongest cases is that memories, emotions, and sometimes even physical injuries, can carry over from one life to the next. He says that if this is what we mean by reincarnation, then his conclusion is the same as Stevenson's, but he prefers to use the more specific terminology because we know almost nothing about reincarnation. Tucker says that we need to question our materialist assumptions about the world He cites quantum physics and talks about consciousness as primary, with the physical world growing out of consciousness. Tucker states, Consciousness does not exist because the physical world does. The physical world exists because consciousness does. He goes into some quantum physics experiments that are too complex for me to discuss here. But basically, Tucker says that even though our everyday experience may tell us that life begins at birth and ends at death, a reasonable alternative is that our brains serve as vehicles for consciousness during our lifetimes, but the consciousness existed before our births and will continue after our death. So what does this mean for us all? Does everybody reincarnate? I'm very interested in the answer to this question because while I find this research and its implications to be fascinating, I personally don't like the idea of reincarnation. I'd rather be extinguished as a personal consciousness or absorbed into something more universal than return for more rounds of human life. And I never could quite understand references to reincarnation in Buddhist writings because so much of our focus in Buddhism is doing away with the idea of a separate self and focusing on interdependent co-arising. We talk about a human being as a collection of heaps or skandhas, so what is there to reincarnate? I will, I'll I'll bring in a few of our uh, Buddhist teachers with a few ideas about this in a moment. Tucker says his work can't really answer this question of whether everyone reincarnates in that the many people who never report memories of previous lives may never have had them or have just lost their memories of them. A few of the children, when asked about coming back in the next life, mentioned that not everyone comes back, and it happens only if you want to. Tucker reports that, as far as anyone can tell, past life memories are not common. Only one systematic survey has been done looking at their frequency. It involved people in one section of India, and the researchers found that one case occurred for every 450 inhabitants, although they acknowledged they may have missed some cases. It is conceivable that many more children come into the world with past life memories, but either they lose their memories before they're verbal enough to convey them, or that their attempts to convey them are ignored or rebuffed by parents at a level uh, that basically quashes them. But Tucker says, nonetheless, there is no evidence that most children have such memories and thus no evidence that everyone is reborn back into this world. So recall that in 70% of the cases, the previous person died by unnatural means murder, suicide, accident. The previous individual also tended to die quite young, with median age at death only 28. Even with deaths from natural causes such as illness, the median age was only 35. (laughs) So dying young and dying an unnatural death seemed to increase the likelihood of a return. this life. How to understand this? We've been reading Katagiri Roshi in our Wednesday group, and some of his recent chapters have been about karma. Katagiri describes karma as a kind of energy produced by actions. Katagiri talks about some karma that is individual, as well as karma that is universal. He describes individual karma as, as being like individual character. Shaku Okumura also uh, has done some writing about karma. He was uh, talking about the teaching of storehouse consciousness, the deepest layer of our consciousness in which all our experiences are stored. Shahaku says, "This is karmic consciousness, and it's how we are unique. Each of us has different seeds stored in our storehouse. Shahaku suggests that this concept can explain, <coughs> excuse me, how our life has continuity without having permanent self. He says that like a river or waterfall, there is something that continues in our consciousness. <coughs> so, I could see the possibility that some individual karma could seem so unresolved in a life short by an accident, say, that karma might be able to continue on into another being, especially if we accept the view that consciousness is not limited by the physical And perhaps this would be most likely to happen in situations where the individual has a high degree of grasping and clinging and attachment to the prior life. Possibly that next being, the following personality, could manifest the individual karma in the form of personality traits, preferences and talents, as well as manifesting the trauma of the previous personality's death. Perhaps after several years of focus on the prior personality's life and memories, that individual karma is resolved enough that the person can attend to the present life and let go of clinging to the past. Katagiri Roshi stresses the immense complexity of time and space, past, present, and future, working together in interdependent co-origination to explain how the phenomenal world arises. Perhaps this complexity can include more of a contribution from one life in the past to another life in the future than I had previously thought.